All right, I'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. I'll be reading uh, verses 18 through, I'm going to read verses 18 through 30 because it's a section. But we're going to be looking, our focus this morning will be verses 18 through 25. So Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? For, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So last week, we looked at verses 12 through 17 as we're continuing our study through Romans chapter 8 and book of Romans as a whole. And in that section there, we were introduced to the beautiful but oft overlooked doctrine of adoption. And the passage begins in verse 12 by talking how, speaking about how we are to be debtors not to the flesh, but then implied because it doesn't state it explicitly, we are to be debtors to the spirit. We are no longer obligated to live or to walk or to think according to the flesh because the Holy Spirit has set us free so that we can live now according to the Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit enables us then to put to death, and Paul uses that language there, to put to death the deeds of the body, as in we are to be actively seeking to kill sin in our lives. And then by doing so, we will live and not die. And then Paul goes on to talk about how all those who are led by the Spirit, they are the ones who are the sons or the children of of God, how the Holy Spirit marks off uh, those who are sons and daughters of God, how the Holy Spirit transforms us from slaves to sons, and he grants us then the awesome privilege of calling God Abba, Father. We are given that privilege as children to then pray to God as our Father, as Jesus himself taught us to pray by saying our Father, something that was hitherto not done by the Jewish people. And then most importantly, then the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts, in our spirits, that we are also sons of God and then heirs with Christ. How, so how just you know, taking that Old Testament principle, how 
a charge has to be um, confirmed by two or three witnesses. Well, the Holy Spirit then is a witness to our adoption. He witnesses to our hearts that we are indeed children of God, that we are sons and daughters of God and then heirs. If we're children, then we are heirs with Christ. And then he concludes that section by saying that all these awesome benefits of the indwelling Holy Spirit are ours only if we suffer with Christ. How suffering is part of the Christian life. And then we endure this suffering so that we will be glorified. So it is this idea of how Christ lived his life. Christ went through humiliation to exaltation. He went through suffering into glory. And all, everything that he did went through the road of the cross before he obtained his reward. In fact, that was one of the things that Satan tempted Jesus with when he was in the wilderness. When he went his 40 days in the wilderness, his fasting 40 days where he was tempted by Satan, Satan tempts Jesus to become king, to take his kingship without going through the cross. Everything Satan does to tempt Christ is to have him avoid going to the cross. In fact, even in his, when he's praying in the garden before the crucifixion, we don't see it explicitly that Satan is tempting him, but he is under the weight of heavy you know, anxiety. He is so anxious, not in a good way, anxious about what is going to happen. He's praying, he's sweating drops of blood, and he even prays to the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, what you will, not what I will. In other words, he had to go through the cross. And every temptation that sought to derail the mission of Christ sought to derail it by having him avoid going to the cross. But I want to say a few words about suffering in the Christian life, because when I say this, I know we all acknowledge this to be true, because the Bible talks about it, and we acknowledge the Bible to be true. But there's often a gap between experience and our knowledge, right? You know, we can know something to be true, but we, you know, we don't experience it, so we don't have that extra confirmation. Like, you, you could tell me, and I know this, that, you know, if I put my hand in a flame, I'm going to burn my hand. doesn't make me eager, then, to go test that theory out, okay? Now, if you're talking to our youngest son, he would actually test that theory. It's like, wait, what, you tell me if I put my hand in the fire, it's going to get burned? I, I'm going to trust but verify, okay? Yeah, okay, indeed, it does, it does burn my hand. You're right, Father. I should have listened to you in the first place. Now, me, I'm not eager to do that. If you tell me I put my hand in a flame, more than likely, I see fire burn things anyway. I'm going to assume it's going to burn my flesh as well. I'm not going to put my hand in the fire. Now, the Bible is replete with this teaching that suffering is a part of the Christian life. That it is not only just a part, it is, it is a feature. You know, that's what we used to say in IT when, a, when something went wrong. We would say, that's not a bug, it's a feature of the software. <laughs> okay. But uh, this is not a bug of, the, of life, it is a feature of the Christian life. Exhibit A is Jesus Christ himself. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is there in the upper room discourse and he's talking to his disciples. And he tells them, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
So remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And in that passage, Jesus is essentially saying that our identity is with Christ and that our identity with Christ will result in suffering. If we acknowledge him, we will suffer for that. If we hold firm to our faith, we will suffer for that in this world. In fact, it almost seems what Jesus says here is that the persecution of believers, the persecution of the church is almost done sort of like a proxy persecution of Jesus himself. In fact, that's what Jesus tells Paul in the Damascus Road experience. When Paul is on his way to Damascus to persecute some Christians, he gets stopped by Jesus. Jesus knocks him off his donkey onto his backside and says to him, he says, Paul, Paul, he doesn't say, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting my church? He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? The church is identified with Christ. When they persecute the church, they are persecuting Christ. Later on in that same discussion in John 16, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jesus tells me, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Again, that's what he says. You're out in the world. I'm going to send you out in the world and you're going to have tribulation. But then he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Exhibit B is the Apostle Paul himself. Paul's life was one of continual persecution. Every, almost everywhere, he, you just read his story in the book of Acts, and you see at various times how he was mistreated, how he was arrested, how he was beaten, how he was you know, in fear of his life. He was chased out of towns and everything. And you know, he was a fearless advocate of the gospel. As such, he suffered greatly for Christ. And in 2 Corinthians, which is probably by far Paul's most personal letter, where he gets the most sort of talking about himself, mostly. Um, And at the end of that letter, in chapter 11, he reveals some of the sufferings he went through for the sake of the gospel. It's a long section, we're not going to read it, but if you want to take note of it, it's 2 Corinthians 11, verses 16 to 33. And he just goes, he checks down a list of all the things that he's gone through. I suffered this, I suffered this, I was beaten, I was given the, the 40 lashes minus one. You know, all these things for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, in 2 Timothy 3.12, which is many scholars, and I agree, um, believe is his last letter. 2 Timothy is his last letter. He is more than likely in a Roman jail, not like he was before, but this is later in his life. And he's awaiting his execution at this point. And in this letter, he says... Uh, In 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So as a Christian, do you desire to live a godly life? You will be persecuted. (laughs) Now, why is this the case? Well, simply put, Christians are lights in this dark world. When the light shines in the darkness, those who love the darkness revolt because they hate the light. And if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. When you stand for biblical principles, you will be persecuted. A Christian living a godly life is, in a sense, an open rebuke to those who are in open rebellion to God. Now, you may say, and I would agree, surely not everyone is hostile to Christians, right? 
I mean, we live in this world. We're not, you know, outside daily facing persecution for our beliefs. And this is indeed true. But there's going to come a point at some point if you live a godly life, if you live your faith open, there's going to be some point where there will be a clash of worldviews. It is inevitable. You cannot escape it. At some point, you're going to disagree on something with the world. You know, you may have a large, you know, uh, overlap of things that you agree with, but at some point, you're going to have a disagreement with the world, whether it's over homosexuality, whether it's over transgenderism, whether it's over issues of social justice, whatever. Pick your, I just picked, you know, those are the first three that came off because those seem to be the ones that are always in the news, you know, today. But, you know, go back 20 years, it'll probably be a list of three different things. You know, go ahead 20 years from now, it'll probably be a list of three different things. It doesn't matter. There's always going to be some point where if you live your Christian faith out loud, you're going to run into conflict with the world. At whatever point there is a conflict, the Christian position will be rejected. And Jesus, of course, wants his disciples then to count the cost of discipleship. This is not a social club. This is not... You know, the Rotary Club. I mean, you know, this is not a, a fun thing to do, right? you know, where you go to have a good time, right? You know, this is, this is the, the Christian life. It is a life of picking up your cross and bearing it daily. And that leads us into Romans 18 through 25, or verse, chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. So this concept of suffering in the Christian life then connects last week's passage with this week's passage because Paul ends Romans 8, 17. He ends last week's passage with this when, when he says this, provided we suffer with Christ in order that we may also be glorified with him. So while the Christian life is characterized with suffering, it is not a vain suffering. We do not suffer for nothing. But the suffering leads to Glory. And that's what we're going to see here as we now look at verse 18, how suffering leads to glory. Now, what makes any unpleasant experience worth it? I'll just throw this out there. What makes any unpleasant experience worth the effort? What you gain at the end, right? If there's something better waiting for you on the other side of that experience. For many, work or their jobs can be unpleasant. Maybe not constantly, but whether it's farming or teaching or nursing or raising kids or any other job, there are always going to be aspects of it that are unpleasant. Things you just don't want to do. I don't like to do, but I have to do them because in order to get what I want, I need to do these things. There's no shortcuts, okay? But you do them anyway because you want to get the the. The result, the results, you know, I I use this uh, illustration before a lot, working out or exercising, okay? No one actually, I, I, well, if you say you like working out, I'm going to call you out on this, okay? (laughs) Because my opinion is no one actually likes to exercise. You do it because you either want to lose weight or you want to have a healthier lifestyle or you want to look good for somebody or whatever. Whatever the reason is, that's why you're working out. You either want to live longer, you want to just shed a few pounds so you can fit into, uh, you know, old clothes that you've had, or you're trying to impress somebody. 
Okay? I mean, no one works out for the sake of working out. You know, maybe you might know somebody. I'm gonna, I would call them out on it. But it's the results. It's what you get at the end. It's what you get on the other side of it that makes it worth it. And that applies to the Christian life too. And that's what Paul wants to get across in verse 18 where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So again, everything Paul went through that he details it in 2 Corinthians 11, 16 to 33, everything he experienced, all of the persecutions that he experienced, he says, are not worth comparing with what waits me on the other side, with what awaits me in the age to come. And that, that word consider, we've seen it before, logizomai, uh, we've seen it, it's all throughout Romans. Paul uses this word a lot, but where we see it translated also as consider, we saw this before in Romans 6.11, where he says, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this idea of considering is a mental reckoning. It is an acknowledging the truth of something. It is, you take, you know, you hear a statement, I'm dead to sin, and you, you accept that as true. I am indeed dead to sin. I, I put that in the truth column. And the same thing is going on here. Paul is making a mental reckoning that no matter what goes on in this life, it is not worth comparing to what will be in the life to come. Now, the glory that is to be revealed is, as we'll see later, speaking of our own glorification, our own glorification. And theologically, glorification is our final state. It is the goal to which everything that is happening in redemptive history is happening. It is our telos, our end point. It was the prize that was held out to Adam in the garden when, when he said, you know, if you uh, obey me, now, of course, he said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The flip side of that is if you obey me, if you refuse to eat of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will live. And that life was glorified life. It was held out to Adam in the garden. Now, that, now Adam lost it due to sin. But that prize then was regained by Jesus Christ, the last Adam. We looked at that in Romans 5. You remember, by sin, by one man's sin, disobedience or uh, uh, death came to all because all have sinned. But by one man's obedience, life comes through righteousness in Christ. So Christ regained it. And then that prize, that glorification is then given to us by our union with Christ. In Philippians, Paul describes glorification as a transformation. Philippians 3.21, where he says, Christ, who will transform our lowly body our body of flesh, a body that's of this age, to be like his glorious body, his spiritual body, his body that is fit for the age to come. And he'll do so by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So when he returns, we will be transformed. We will have a body like his body. That transformation is one from perishable to imperishable, or from dishonor to glory, or from weakness to power or from natural to spiritual. And that is why Paul can say confidently that anything that happens to him in this life is not even worth comparing to what waits, uh, with what awaits him. In fact, he says, 
It's nothing but pure gain, right? That's what he says in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. To die, it's not just marginally better. <laughs> he just says, it's gain. You know, everything I'm going through in this life is for a purpose, which is to, you know, push the gospel out, to win people to Christ, to further the kingdom of God in the world. But then when I die, I'm going to just get pure gain. So it's useful for me to be down here doing these things, but I know when I die, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, it's going to be so much better, far better than what it is here. In fact, a very similar passage to the one we're looking at here in, in Romans 8, 18 can be found in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, where Paul says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're, they're passing. They're here today, they're gone tomorrow, they're like the grass of the field. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And it's interesting because it's the same letter, 2 Corinthians, where later on he talks about all the persecutions, all the suffering he went through for the gospel. And he calls that, you know, then in this passage he says, oh, this light momentary affliction <laughs> you know yeah it's like i stubbed my toe yeah it's, it's kind of what he's saying everything i've gone through this life it's it's not even worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory which is beyond all comparison i just think of some of the practical implications of this think of the comfort future glory can bring to christians suffering real persecution in the here and now so they can read Paul's words and they can say, this light and momentary affliction is building up for me an eternal weight of glory. Or the things that I'm suffering now are not worth comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed. Now, I can endure a lot. Okay, I've got a fairly good tolerance for certain amounts of pain, whether they're physical or emotional or, or, or whatever. Um, and I can endure a lot if I think what awaits me is far better than what I'm experiencing now. And that's the point. Why do you think the Christians of the past were able to endure some of the most gruesome tortures imaginable? Crucifixion, burning at the stake, being drawn and quartered, all kinds of gruesome things. The worst things that human beings can devise to do to other human beings. Yet Christians willingly submitted themselves to these tortures because they knew that the eternal weight of glory that awaited them was beyond comparison to what was happening now. And this is not just some wishful thinking doctrine meant to mollify distressed believers to kind of keep them, you know, what uh, Nietzsche called Christianity, the opiate of the masses. This is not just some drug to tell people so that they willingly walk to slaughter. This is the truth. This is the truth. This is a rock-solid truth that is grounded in our union with Christ and is based on all the promises that we see in the Bible. In fact, this attitude that Paul describes here is one that Jesus himself exhibited in Hebrews 12.2, um, where the author exhorts us to, to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He says, looking to Jesus, who for the joy... That was set before him, glorification, being exalted to God's right hand, 
For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus saw the goal. Jesus knew the goal. And because of that goal, he powered through. He didn't avoid the cross. When he was there in the garden and prayed to to God to have this cup pass from me. But he said, again, nevertheless, not what you will or not what I will, but what you will. And he went to the cross because he knew what was on the other side of it was far better. The joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Well, now we move to verses 19 through 22, where we see the groaning creation. So wonderful is the news of future glory that the whole, thing, the whole creation is pictured here uh, waiting with eager longing for it. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So Paul here takes creation and he personifies it as a being, as a person waiting expectantly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, if you remember last week we, when we spoke about adoption, we said that there was an already not yet aspect to it, that we are like justification, adoption uh, is declarative. We are declared to be children of God. The Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that we are be, to be children of God. But the fact that we're sons of God is also something that is yet to be revealed. It is not yet in its full consummation, which comes at the end of the age. And that's what, you know, that is what will be revealed or unveiled or disclosed. That word there, uh, revealed, is the word from which we get revelation, apocalypsis. It is, it is an, an apocalypse, <laughs> in a sense. The, the revealing of the sons of God is, is an, it dis, a disclosure, is an unveiling. So it's sort of like, here we are, we're the sons of God, but we're veiled. Remember I asked last week, can you look at somebody and see that they're a son or a daughter of God? And people are like, no, you can't see that physically. Because it is veiled. But when Christ returns, it'll be unveiled. It'll be disclosed. It'll be revealed. And that is what the creation waits for. In fact, Peter, in his first epistle, gives us some hints of this, where he says in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So we rejoice and share in Christ's sufferings. Again, this idea of suffering leads to glory. We rejoice in Christ's suffering so that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then a little later on in 1 Peter 5.1, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a felder elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So when Christ's glory is revealed, that is when he returns, as he says in Matthew 24, coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory, that's when we will be partakers of the glory that is to be revealed. When he returns in glory, then we too will be revealed in all of our glory as well. And probably one of the best verses that describes all of this comes from the pen of John himself in 1 John 3, 2. He says, Beloved, We are God's children now, the already, and what we will be has not yet appeared, the not yet, but we know that when he does appear, 
We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we shall be like Jesus. That is the revealing of the sons of God. Now, why is creation waiting with eager longing for our glorification? Well, we see the answer for that in verse 20, where he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So when Adam sinned in paradise, right, there wasn't just consequences for the whole human race, but for all of creation. All of creation was affected by Adam's sin. In fact, the fall of mankind had cosmic consequences. Keep your finger in Romans 8 and turn to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, of course, that's the fall of mankind. God judges them. He judges them. And in verse 16, after judging the serpent, in verse 16, he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bear forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Then to the man, or Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust, and to dust you shall return. The fall of mankind had cosmic consequences, from pain and childbearing to the formation of thorns and thistles in the ground, creation was subjected to futility. And that word futility means worthless or useless. In other words, the creation no longer serves the purposes for which it was created. And think of all the natural disasters we see in creation, right? Floods, earthquakes, tornadoes, particularly, you know, that's something that we, you know, are very much concerned with here, tornadoes or droughts. Uh, things that make your work harder, farmers. <laughs> um, tornadoes, hurricanes, even dreaded climate change. All of this is part of the futility of creation, not to mention the disharmony that we have with the animal kingdom. And all of it can be labeled as futility as it no longer fulfills God's original creative purposes. Now, even though Adam's sin subjected the creation to futility, it was God himself who did the subjecting, right? So it's all God's fault. We could be like Adam and Eve in the garden. It's your fault, God, that, you know, I have to work hard to produce, you know, uh, good stuff here. So is is it all God's fault? Should we take a vote? Who says it's God's fault? Nobody? Good. It is not God's fault. I mean, we don't blame a judge who pronounces a death penalty on a cap, in a capital trial. You know, we don't blame that death on the judge, right? It's not the judge's fault that that person was you know, executed for the crimes they committed. The judge is just passing judgment. And that's what God is. He passes judgment. He subjected the world or the creation to futility as a result of man's sin. It was his judgment on sin. And also, it goes to show you just how 
egregious sin is. You know, when R.C. Sproul says that sin is cosmic treason, and we're like, okay, yeah, sin. I mean, we laugh at our sins sometimes, right? Oh, I made, we, we come up with, I'm, I told a white lie, or I made a mistake, or, you know, I, I, you know, I was just ignorant of this, or whatever. We often, so, you know, so often think little of our sins, but Adam's just one act of disobedience didn't just condemn us, the whole human race, but it subjected the whole creation to futility. It really does put sin in perspective. But then Paul says here it was subjected in hope. In other words, God wasn't like, okay, well, this is hopeless. Let's start over again. You know, Earth 2.0. Let's try you know, the new version. Maybe the new version's better. It'll, I'll work out. Okay, we had bugs in the first version. Let's work those out and we'll, we'll make a better product. Okay, that's not what he does. But rather, there was always a plan of renewal, a plan of renovation, and a plan of restoration for creation. That's what we see in verse 21. You could turn back to Romans 8 too, by the way. Romans 8, 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And here Paul is describing creation much like he describes ourselves when he's talking about us in Romans 6 and 7, where in those passages we were in bondage to sin and God had to set us free in Christ. Here the creation is in bondage to futility. The creation is enslaved to futility. Until that is, it is set free from its bondage to corruption. And again, this happens at our glorification, which is why then creation is eagerly longing for our revelation as the sons of God. In fact, you can almost see like the humanity and creation are sort of locked in a way like a, in a symbiotic relationship, right? When, when God or when Adam fell, the creation fell as well. But when we are glorified, then the creation itself will be renewed as well. So our corruption means corruption for the world. Our glorification means glorification for the world. Again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, we are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All this comes at the end of the age when we will be glorified. And we've looked at this passage many times before, and we'll look at it again when we get there in our study through Revelation. But Revelation 21, verse 1, where John sees a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea was no more. So the creation will be renewed. The creation will be renovated. It'll have all of the aspects of this age removed from it. All of the corruption will be cleansed, and it'll be New. It'll be not just like new as in time, as in, you know, like you get the iPhone 12 after you've had the iPhone 11 for two years. It'll be new qualitatively speaking. A whole new, you know, I, you know, I guess that's, now I'm thinking of Aladdin, a whole new world. Yeah. But it'll be a whole new world, right? But until that day, creation then groans. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So even though creation here is pictured groaning like a woman in labor, we know that at the end of the labor, a beautiful child is born. 
Out of the suffering comes something beautiful. Again, women, why do you go through childbirth? Nine months of carrying this thing in your body that can, you know, causes you pain and sits on your sciatic nerve and makes you kind of waddle and, and just gives you all kinds of pain. You do it because you know when you give birth, you're giving birth to life. You're in a sense creating life. Jeremiah 12, verses 4 and 11, uh, the prophet talks, How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. And then verse 11, They have made it a desolation, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Here again, the prophet is talking about how the creation is just mourning its pitiful, uh, futile state until the glorification of the sons of God. In fact, not only does creation groan, but we ourselves groan as we look now at verses 23 and 25. We're groaning too, verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That word groan that is used in these two verses, stenazo, speaks of a sighing, a groaning, a complaining, a grumbling. And the creation groans like a woman in labor, and we too groan. But our groaning takes on a deeper aspect because we have the first fruits of the Spirit in us as renewed uh, people in Christ, as new creations in Christ. We are already experiencing part of that age to come. And we know then that something is wrong, right? So we, we know, and that's why we groan too. We groan because we've been given a taste of the age to come with the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we want more. Again, I think this verse really plays out the tension and the agony of the already and the not yet. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a down payment of greater things to come, but we have to wait for it. I don't know about all of you. I hate waiting. I, I'm an impatient person, right? I hate waiting. I, don't, I, I want it now. Don't give me this down payment and then the payment later. Give it all to me now. And again, think about everything going on that's wrong in ourselves and in the world. We've got COVID ravaging our populace. We've got diseases such as cancer and diabetes, influenza, AIDS, etc., and just the whole aging process in general as our bodies slowly break down and fail to function as they once did. We're all, we already mentioned all of the natural disasters we're subject to. It is frustrating. It is frustrating because we know this is not how things are meant to be. And it's frustrating because we know that this will all be fixed instantaneously when Christ returns. But we have to wait. We have to wait. And what we're waiting for is our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We are in the already and we eagerly wait for the not yet. And this is the proper mindset of the believer. We need to be at home with this discomfort of living in this sin-cursed world. Put it another way, if we're not living in this groaning tension 
between the already and the not yet, then something is wrong. We should never fully be satisfied with this life, but always looking for the age to come. This is why, you know, we ought to adopt what other scholars have called sort of like a pilgrim mindset. You know, the pilgrims, you know, the history of the pilgrims, they left England looking for religious liberty. So they embarked for a, you know, to build a city on a hill, you know, and they came to the new world to to escape. But this idea of the pilgrim, you know, we have to feel like we're sort of like Israel in the wilderness. Okay, our Christian life is sort of like Israel in the wilderness. We are moving toward the promised land, but we're not there yet. That's the whole point. We have to feel as if we're in this world, but not of this world. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through, as the old spiritual song goes. But the good news is that our groaning is not fatalistic. It's not nihilistic, but a groaning of hope. It is a groaning of hope. Verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul says here, in this hope we were saved. Our salvation has as its ultimate end or its ultimate goal the redemption of our bodies. That is our hope. And we've seen this word hope before, okay? The the word biblical hope is different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is you you kind of hope that something that isn't going to happen happens, okay? You know, know, I mean, for for many, many years as a Cubs fan, I hoped the Cubs would win the World Series. And for many, many, many years, I was frustrated in that hope. Now, they eventually did. But the point is, you know, you you hope for something that you think you – I really – would like this to happen, but I don't expect it to happen. But biblical hope is expecting something that is going to happen and it will happen because it is based on the promises of God. Hope is the confident expectation that the thing hoped for will come about. Again, Hebrews 11.1 1, that starts at a great chapter on the Hall of Fame of Faith says, now faith is the assurance of things Hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So that faith is that sort of what fuels this hope. It is, it, faith is the ground. It is the assurance of the thing that is hoped for. So we have faith in the promises of God. And as such, then we have a confidence in the things that God promises to us. And is the conviction of things not seen. But hope is not having in the here and now. That's what he says. We don't hope for what we see. Because if you see it, you don't have to hope for it anymore, right? You know, I hope I get something, and then if you got it, you know, I don't have to hope anymore, you know, whatever. So you don't hope for what you see. You hope for what you don't see. And what we don't see yet is the glorification of our bodies. Hope looks forward to the things unseen. And that's the point Paul wants to make. We are groaning and eagerly waiting for a reality that will come but it's not here yet. And that is our hope, and for it we wait patiently. Well, that's it for this morning. Next week, Lord willing, on the 14th, that's Valentine's Day, how about that? Valentine's Day on a Sunday. 
We'll finish this section uh, looking at Romans 8, 26 to 30 as we consider, I'm not yet sure what I'm going to call it, but we're going to call it the golden chain of salvation for now.